This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Rob Conybeer. Hello and welcome to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Broadcasting today for the first time from our new home, Sirius XM Channel 132. So we have a great show coming up today. We have a perspective on the future of technology and really what is technology doing to our brains and our social lives. We have technology experts and authors and futurists, Alex Salkiver and Vivek Wadwa, Vivek is a distinguished fellow at Harvard Law School's Labor and Work Life Program. He's also a professor at Carnegie Mellon University's College of Engineering. He's written several books. He's been a columnist for Fortune, The Washington Post, and other noted publications. And in the studio, we have Alex Selkiever. He is an author and technology executive. He formerly served as a technology editor at Business Week and is a visiting researcher at Duke University. He advises technology companies on product strategy and marketing, and he's a regular columnist for Fortune as well. I'm thrilled to welcome to the show Alex Salkiver and Vivek Wadwa. Thanks for having me on. And we also have Vivek on the line. Vivek, thanks for joining us today. No, it's great to be on with you. So Vivek and Alex have written three books together. They regularly write about controversial topics in technology and society, Their most recent book is called Your Happiness Was Hacked, Why Tech is Winning the Battle to Control Your Brain and How to Fight Back. And today we're going to discuss the impacts of how exponentially growing technologies are changing our world. So before we get into that, how did the two of you meet and how do two people write a book together? Because are are you sitting next to each other or how does it actually work? So maybe just talk through that a little bit, how you met and what it's like writing a book together. I'll let well, you take a, the first question. No, no, Alex, I want to answer that one because uh, yeah. you came to me. I mean, I used to be a tech guy. I, you know, I was, um, I founded a couple of companies. I was CEO of Relativity Technologies. Alex was a journalist uh, who wrote about me a couple of times. And then, um, uh, you know, I mean, I had, a, I had a heart attack. I was switching gears. I sent a note to my mailing list saying, hey, I'm going to be doing a stint in Bollywood. And Alex wrote to me saying, hey, Vivek, how'd you like to uh, write about that? I said, who, me, right? And uh, uh, he said, yeah, I can show you how. So he taught me how to do it. And my first column was Bollywood, Here I Come. So I've known Alex since, you know, those days. This was like 20 years ago. Oh, that's Alex funny. Said, I wonder how many, you know, I, I have to ask, Alex, how many people have you coached on how to write? Dozens and dozens. Dozens. Okay, because before we started the show about five minutes ago, he was actually starting to pitch me on not, not don't worry, Vivek. He wasn't saying he was going to write with me. He was just <laughs> pitching me on the idea of maybe I should write a book. So, so that's no, you can have him. You can have him. No, <laughs> <laughs> no he definitely seems to be a polymath with the time. So, so anyway, so what sparked the motivation for writing this book, this most recent book? Were you guys having a conversation? Were you having drinks somewhere? Were you on Skype? I mean, how did it come together? Um, so we were thinking about writing our next book, and initially we were thinking, oh, we'll write something about the future of work and robots, and yeah, and that's happening. But at the same time. I had noticed that uh, over time I was getting a little more scattered, a little more ADD. And in particular, uh, I one weekend I was driving down from Mendocino back to my home in Marin. 
And there was a bunch of stuff flying back and forth with the executives on the company I was working at and people were texting and I'm texting while I'm driving on Highway 1, which, Rob, yeah, you're, you're driving. You may not really, know. That's a very curvy, dangerous road. It's a very curvy, dangerous road, a very, very stupid thing to do. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not Einstein, but I'm not stupid either. And yet I couldn't stop doing it. And I almost uh, ran four cyclists off the road. I didn't hit anybody, but I stopped just in time. Uh, probably would have killed them because, I mean, the cliffs there are 300, 400 feet. Uh, and this just flashed in my mind, like, what am I doing here? How is it that this thing, texting, has such a hold over my executive functions that I can't even do the most logical, safe thing in the world, which is put the phone down? Did you pull over to the side of the road and start thinking, okay, feel terrible about myself, and then instantly, this would make a great book? Not instantly, but okay. <laughs> but it's, it just made me think, God, this is out of control. You know, I need to change something about this. So, Vivek, did Alex give you a call after that or send you an email well, shortly email, after this? He sent me an email saying, Vivek, you know, we should uh, write something more important first. And uh, his suggestion was the end of happiness. And I started thinking about it. And, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 the light went off in my head saying that this is really, really important. Because the previous book we wrote was Driving the Driverless Car. The book postulated that we have the chance to build the amazing future of Star Trek, but along the way we could mess it up and instead head into the darkness of Mad Max. And you know, while we were writing it, while we were completing the book, um, Donald Trump got elected. So we had to <laughs> literally recall the book and update the, a chapter in it because you know Mad Max was happening sooner than we expected. Now I don't want to attack Trump on this show or you know be left or right, but the fact was both the uh, you know extreme left and the extreme right. We're rising, getting you know further apart, and the darkness we saw was happening. And then also, if you looked at what our friends in Silicon Valley were doing, they were making this happen. They were facilitating this widening gap. And what's more, the technologies they were building were making us unhappier. All the data points you look at show that uh, people aren't happy anymore. If you look at you know society from the bigger picture, you can see it. They were tearing ourselves apart. That uh, we you know, here in California, we speak lang one language. You go to the Midwest, they speak another language, and and both sides hate each other. They can't understand. Trump supporters can't understand what's wrong with these leftists. I mean, uh, what's you know, these people are crazy. They're destroying our great nation. And we think that the uh, here in California, we think that the Trump people are crazy. And who's made this happen? Well, we're hearing about it now. We're really reading about it every day now. Facebook, Twitter, you know, our friends in uh, the tech industry, they are now on the defensive and they've acknowledged the fact that they've been facilitating this and they knew what was going on. But we saw this, you know, about a year ago. And we said, oh, my God, this is a real problem. And that's why we decided to write the book. So that's a good background. And one of the things that I wanted to ask Alex about, because Alex does look at a lot of the research, a lot of data-driven pieces, how is happiness measured when people say happiness? Measuring happiness is extremely difficult. Uh, primarily, it's survey-driven, and uh, you obviously can f get pretty much what you want if you ask questions the right way. Um, so what we did is we tried to look at a bunch of other measures. Uh, for example, uh, life expectancy, which in the U.S. is now going down, actually. Uh, suicides, which are going up. Yeah, that uh, might be correlated. Yeah, I mean, uh, correlated so, uh, going like rates of depression, which sometimes is self-reported, but it's actually also there's there's like very strong growth in medical reports of of depression. 
um, and other things too that we think are strongly correlated with happiness. So, for example, physical activity. You know, like children today, according to some studies, can run a mile. It takes them 90 seconds longer to run a mile than they could uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, you look at body mass index. You look at I mean, people being outside in nature. All these things which are strongly associated with happiness are going down. So one of the things that I think people see in social media, and it sounds like a lot of what you were talking about is the impact of social media. Yes, although it's, it's broader than that. That's part of it, yeah. So, so we'll, we'll come to that then, is this idea of the fear of missing out. Oh, yes. FOMO. Yes. Could you, Alex, could you talk a bit about FOMO? So um, I actually would want Vivek to talk a little bit about here for a second, because could you tell him about the vacation where he had the heart attack and how that was essentially like a FOMO-driven heart attack, Vivek? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, after uh, turning my company around a few years ago, many years ago, I took a vacation. Uh, we took a cruise to uh, the, the Caribbean, to um, Mexico, Cancun, and so on. And internet wasn't working on the uh, the ship, and that created a lot of stress. And then, uh, you know, it was sort of being disconnected. Uh, it was like, oh my God, uh, what's happening to the world? What's going on over here? And before I knew it, I had a massive heart attack. I mean, not necessarily those things are related because there are many, many other factors over here. But the fact is... But it was a triggering event to a literal heart attack. Well, and, and one other point that sort of Vivek talks about in the book, too, as well, is when he, he had a searing pain in his chest, got off the plane, he told his wife he wanted to go home to check his email before he went to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> So so when when you look at this, it sounds like what you're talking about is like caffeine withdrawal or any other substance abuse. I would think that's a that's an accurate comparison, yeah. And are people doing Rob, research Rob, into this? You're now? A venture Rob, you're a venture capitalist over here. It's your fault as well. The the companies that it's the companies that you folks are blindly oh. funding that are doing this. They've been they've been trained by uh professors at Stanford to build addiction. I mean, there's a chapter in there about, you know, Professor Fogg and uh, the addiction technologies. He's been, you know, selling and peddling and teaching these students. Is and it literally called addiction technologies? No, they, they, no, they don't call it addiction. They call it actually, uh, you know, behavioral sciences or behavioral design. Feedback loops, yeah. positive feedback well, and, loops. And or... to Fogg's credit, I mean, what he was trying to do as well was build positive addictions around healthy behaviors or helping people, you know, monitor health conditions, things like that. So, I mean, like anything powerful, addiction can be for better or for worse. We just think that that was primarily co-opted for worse in a lot of cases. Well, one of the questions I want to ask you, Alex, is I remember in the first couple years that I used Facebook, I loved it mainly because it was a great way to keep family and friends truly up to speed with what I was doing. So here are the kids, here are things they're doing because they're out of town, they're in different places. But I feel like there was a period of time at some point where it really tipped somehow. And do you think that was when the news feed came along and they really thought of the news feed as opposed to status updates? Or how did it change from where it was truly more of a utility to something that was more about let's get people to click and click and click. Do you think I'm being naive about it? Or do you no, think not there was at all. a time where there was a strategic shift? I mean, look, they measure their success in, you know, in time spent in app because they're primarily a CPM driven business, right? I mean, there are click throughs and they count on that, but really a lot of what they're doing is CPMs. Um, and even click throughs. And that's cost per thousand views. Exactly. And okay. and it's it depends on people spending more and more and more time 
in-app. So I think initially they were very happy to have what you're describing, which is a nice interaction, sharing photos with friends and family. Um, and then they wanted more. So the newsfeed started to change things. Additionally, I think we changed as well. And I think that this is a little more subtle where uh, you talk about FOMO, for example. Initially, it was friends and family. Then you started seeing other people's vacations from high school. Maybe you didn't care that much about, but they were having a really cool vacation. And you started thinking, God, you know, why didn't I have that cool vacation? Or why am I not doing this or that? And all of a sudden. Oh, and then you introduced likes because in the early exactly. days, you didn't have that. People might comment, but the like made it so easy. So you'd post something and then you find out do people like it or not. Exactly. And you almost have distributed A-B tests where people would know. You would get feedback whether you liked it or not on whether something you posted was popular. Entirely true, and that builds an addictive feedback loop as well where you post something and you're like, oh, five minutes later, did anyone like it? Did anyone like it? And you see this dynamic happening where people will come back and keep checking this for what's essentially a useless behavior because the friction of a like is almost zero. Uh, you know, it's, it's really not a meaningful thing. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here on the line right now with Vivek Wadwa and in the studio with Alex Salkiever. They are the authors of Your Happiness Was Hacked, Why Tech is Winning the Battle to Control Your Brain and How to Fight Back. So, Vivek, how do, how do people break this loop? Well, what you have to do is, first of all, realize that you're addicted. I mean, it's like being addicted to alcohol. <laughs> anonymous. First, you have to admit that I'm an alcoholic and there's something wrong over here. Then you have to look at yourself and saying, you know, what am I doing wrong? I mean, look at every technology. Do you have to have Twitter and Facebook on your smartphone? Do you have to check email 100 times an hour? Do you have to, you know, be using Facebook the way you do? You have to go through every technology and look at yourself. I mean, you have to make it personal and figure out what are you doing and why you're doing it. You know, uh, we're, Alex and I are both big technology fans. I mean, uh, we, 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 you know, we live and die on technology. So the idea isn't to stop using it. The idea is to use it more meaningfully, to make us productive, to bring us together with our friends and family, to make us happy, not to be becoming miserable because we didn't get that like on Facebook or because we didn't get that email we were expecting. You know, the idea is just switch it off and moderate yourself. And, and, and it's, re it's really context-driven, too, where, like, for example, and Vivek talks about this in the book, you know, people use Google Maps all the time now, even when they really don't need it, just because, like, oh, i got to check the traffic. It's like, what does it matter? You're probably, I mean, maybe Waze sends you somewhere else, but you save That's a minute, right. minute and a half. That's right. Um, so you end up just switching it on, and then you stop realizing, like, the distance between exits or things that are changing on the road because you don't look at the road anymore. Um, so, you know, so, like, just having Google Maps as a steady state is probably bad intellectually. But if you're going, say, to Europe, and you might need it to navigate a town or something where you're new and don't know the way around, you know, that's not necessarily a bad context. So well, it's I will really say bad driving in different countries, I've driven in many, many countries around the world. Google Maps is certainly a game changer for it's, navigating it, cities. For driving, it's radical. I think for navigating cities on foot, not so much because I like talking to people and asking them things. So right. do you have a 12-step step, step program, Alex, in the back of the book? Or is there a three-step program or a four-step program? It's a six-step program. Six it's, steps. And it's six questions that we think people should ask themselves. Okay. And yeah. what are those quick questions? Uh, I mean, it runs through a, a fairly long list, but the, the, the basic gist of it is like, you know, first of all, uh, is the technology making you happy or sad? Um, you know, is it harming people around you? So, you know, like if you're at a playground with your kids, are you looking at your phone instead of at your kid? 
Um, you know, does it make you do things that you otherwise wouldn't do? Oh, that's a great example. You're um, at a playground with your kid. Yeah. And you're looking at your phone. And, and you see this behavior constantly. And so, so there's like six of these that we kind of run people through. I don't want to give them all away because I want people to buy the book. Okay. But, but, <laughs> but, but, but at the same time, it's not, it's not, and this is just one set. You can create your own. But it's really about interrupting your behavior, stepping back, and asking these questions. Because at the end of the day, there's only so many hours we have in this life. Do we really want to spend them doing some of the things we're doing? If you're listening right now and you have a story to share about a tech addiction or something you've seen, give us a call. Our number here is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Vivek, coming back to the how do you, you break this cycle, it sounds like number one is admit your addiction, look at yourself, et cetera. But what are some of the positive ways to stay engaged with social media? How do you advise on that? Well, uh, you know, it's a personal thing that uh, for some people, you know, for example, in my case, um, I, I do a lot of writing, okay, and, and I travel around, I give many talks and so on. So I need to have a, an, an audience which I can communicate with, which helps me with my research. Anytime I am, I'm writing something or when I'm researching a topic, I want to be able to reach out to people. So I need social media, you know, for a, for, when I say business, it's really educational purpose. So I have to keep... Uh, you know, sharing information with them as well. Because if I just sit there and, and there's nothing, I'm not saying anything, I won't gain followers. So what I do is that I just switch it on every now and then, and I'll you know read some of the posts over there and I'll share some ideas. I make it a point to share a bunch of ideas every day on Twitter, and um, that's my way of staying engaged. But I, I try to avoid checking it more than I need to. It's not like you have to check it every time you check email. You just limit it, and you don't get to engage with it. Facebook. I've turned off altogether. Because, you know, the advantage for me on Twitter is that the way I'm using it, it's a one-way thing. I, I can have far fewer followers than, I, than people who follow me. So I'm able to, to put my thoughts out there and get the feedback specifically on those thoughts. Facebook is, you know, too much. It's overwhelming for me because you have, every, you know, you see this constant stream of thousands of people. So I don't use Facebook. I, I just cross-post my tweets to Facebook. But that's the way I'm using it. For everyone, well, it's, it's different. And that's the message of the book that maybe everyone... To- has a different use. Maybe to boil it down, what you're talking about is an interaction. Yes. So very it's much so. not just scrolling through and then liking stuff in a more passive, okay, I'm doing this, I'm voting on whether I like this or not. It's more about communicating ideas in an interactive way and like building community. And it sounds like it can be powerful if you're really building a community, but when people have the negative sides, it, it's more of a solitary activity. Yeah, I but think that's then, very true. Yeah. Go ahead, and that's why for me, Twitter makes sense. Facebook doesn't make sense because on Facebook, it's too much. It's, you know, these vacation photos that Alex talked about. It's just constant noise. And that's not where I'm building my community. That's not where I'm getting my information from because it's, it's overload. So, so Vivek, again, I, noticed that you, is different. I noticed that you haven't mentioned Instagram or Snapchat. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I bet for kids more than anything else. <laughs> ask ask him about WhatsApp, though. <laughs> oh, why WhatsApp? I mean, I tell you, uh, I've been ballistic about the fact that WhatsApp has been, uh, you know, I mean, they've gone to the other extreme. If, you know, there have been dozens of deaths across the world because of the mess that they've created. And trying to make it addictive, just like Facebook is, they added group chat to it, except with the end-to-end encryption. Uh, there's no way of moderating the post. So it's imagine Facebook without any moderation, Twitter without any moderation, 
and then an anonymity, complete anonymity. All you have is a phone number, so you don't know who posted what. Messages are forwarded, you have no idea where they caused, what, where they were forwarded from. So it's really creating havoc all over the world. People are dying because of WhatsApp. Here we don't use WhatsApp, so it ain't, it ain't a problem for us. But in, in other countries, it is a serious problem because that's all they have there. And the technology, the addiction technology they added to it was destructive. Evil is what they've, what they've done over here. Well, one thing I do think is, as a side observation, is I think people have become better photographers. Absolutely true. People are better at framing things. They're better at setting things up. I think when you think about careers that might or might not be as challenging in the future, it's probably a lot harder to be a photographer now. Well, I think Instagram democratized it to a large degree. And, I mean, and, and it's interesting. You see, as you look across these social platforms, uh, you know, in some ways. So, like, I think Kevin Systrom has a lot of control over how Instagram is developed because, you know, I think Zuckerberg and top management hasn't been able to kind of exert full control. So that's why you don't see quite as many of these same features on Instagram. Um, it, you still see scroll and things like that, but you don't see like mass retweets. You don't see this, all the bad things you see in Twitter. And I think that's part of why Instagram is where the cool kids hang out now. So looking forward, where does this go? What do you think well, that's, is going... That's the problem over here that if we, you know, if, for example, if you look at WhatsApp in India, the fact that dozens of people have died because of it, you know, mad, the madness that they're injecting into elections and so on, it's mad max that these folks have created, that they have, it's the worst of the worst of the worst. So, so we have to rein these technologies in. You know, it's a personal thing. We have to, we have to do it ourselves. And then the book also goes to what companies need to do because it's, it's not only a social media, it's also at work. This constant Slack notifications, this constant, you know, email. The fact is, we've we reduced productivity because of the nonstop noise over there. Then at the national level, the regulations that are necessary. The book looks into all of these different things, and we have to figure this out. And because if we don't figure it out, we're going to have disaster. We, you know, we're going to have problem after problem after problem. America will become India because people will start killing each other if we don't get this stuff under control. So, Vivek, talking about maybe one or two key things that you say we need to do, is this regulation? Is it legislation? I think that even um, uh, the tech execs are coming to the conclusion now that you need regulation and you need you know, to have a consensus on what's good and what's bad. I mean, you know, the debates most recently have been about AI with Satya Nadella saying, hey, we need to have regulations on AI, and everyone else beginning to nod their heads. It's also on social media. We need to now make sure that we have checks and balances over there. Then the question is, with the news that's being published, is Facebook a publisher? Does it have responsibility for what it does? To me, the answer is a clear yes. It, you know, it's raking in money like there's no tomorrow. It's wiping out the publishing industry. It better take responsibility for what it, for the mess it's created. So we need well, they to did go ahead and call it the newsfeed. It wasn't. You can't say well, you're not a publisher and then call it the newsfeed. It seems like yeah, an know. interesting. Well, and you start to see some signs of, of acknowledgement um, inside these companies as well. So, for example, you probably saw Rob and I think Rebecca. We wrote, talked about this. You know, they started to take preliminary steps towards allowing us to own our our social graphs and export it and move it around if we want. You know, that's something they've all tried to prevent because they don't want you to be able to. They take, want the lock in. They want the lock in, right? And the lock in gives them better control. At the very core of it, though, I think is really an issue of, um, you know, what's your business model? If your business model is attention economy, 
then it's really hard over time to think about the long-term benefit of your users. And you have some very good examples that are not attention economy driven, some of which you've been involved in, like Nest, you know, was like a great business model, give user a lot of utility. Um, Although you'd be surprised how much engagement there was with the app. Meaning high or low? A lot higher than you would think. That's actually great because I don't think that's something that, you know, is a bad thing. Um, you know, similarly, Apple, you saw blowout earnings. I mean, you know, they have people's interests in because they need to sell more of their stuff. It's not a matter of trust. It's not a matter of keeping them on the phone. Um, so I think that it's really can we uh, embrace or think about these other business models, which will drive better behaviors by the companies. Uh, you know, an attention economy is convenient because advertising is profitable. But at the same time, it might not work so well over the long haul. Vivek, do you have anything to add to that? No, I, I agree with Alex on this, and 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 again, it's it's a matter of looking at the personal level, at the business level, you know, at at the social level, and and then at the national level. There, it's a it's a much much bigger than I mean, what we're reading about Cambridge Analytica, election hacking, and so on is just the tip of the iceberg. The technology itself is taking over our lives in every way you can possibly understand, and it's it's hurting us. So we have to figure this out, and because. If we use it right, we can really get back to what we thought would happen with social media is make the world a better place. If we bring it together, we educate, we inspire, we motivate people to, to do good. So, But we have to recognize the fact that this train has fallen off the tracks and so there's we, something that urgently needs to be done. That's so we why we wrote the book. Getting back to what inspired us to do this book was that Alex and I both realized that this train has has almost derailed and it's going, it's going to destroy society unless we figure out how to get it back on track and, and use technology for good. So we have a couple minutes before we have to break, but I do want to ask you a practical question for people that are listening that have kids, kids that are anywhere <laughs> from two through four through six through eight through teenagers. How do you prevent kids from becoming addicted to tech or to break their addiction? Alex? It's a really hard question. I mean, I have teenagers. Um, and first of all, it's important to understand how susceptible the kids are. I mean, some kids, they're perfectly happy playing Fortnite for half an hour and they shut it down. Other kids, they throw a hissy fit and start, you know, go crazy. So understanding how susceptible the kids are is important in putting down. And sort of before let, you decide. Before you decide. Because you really don't want to be a helicopter parent and say, like, no, 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 unless it's pretty clear that it's necessary. Um, if it does become clear that it's necessary, then you want to have a really honest conversation with them, talking, uh, you know, with them as as like not an adult, but as a mature person uh, explaining this is why I'm doing this. And I actually advocate putting in place limitations where, you know, they can take their hour when they want it. They can take their half hour when they want it. But that's what they get. And even using things like, uh, you know, uh, Xfinity's app or some of the different control mechanisms or things that are coming into iOS 12, I think it's a good idea so that people understand the rules of the road. Just like you don't want them driving drunk, you know, you don't want them playing Fortnite for six hours a day. But you still want them to learn and be adept with technology and a lot of the tools. That's not optional. But it's the trade-off. You have to be yeah. good at that. I mean, you can't go and say, I don't do email if you're applying for a job. Just stepping back a little bit, when you look at the books that these folks have written, it's been data-driven, and it's been from more of an academic point of view, where instead of just talking about opinions, it's based. the arguments are based on research and thought, et cetera. And Vivek, you've been a visiting scholar, fellow, professor at many prestigious universities. Where did your interest in academia come from? Well, that goes back to when I used to be a tech exec. I had a heart attack, and uh, you know, I wanted to do something different. 
it was really a matter of taking some time off and recovering. And I joined Duke University many, many years ago. And I realized that it was more rewarding than anything I was doing, that, that being able to teach students, inspire and motivate them to make the world a better place was really, really, you know, fun. And so that's really what got me into academics. But I've been a tech entrepreneur at heart. So now what I'm doing is looking at the bigger picture, trying to see what can I do to make the world a better place? How can we inspire and motivate you know, policymakers to create better policies? How can we now motivate technologists to create better technologies? How can we solve the grand challenges of humanity? That's what the books are focused on. The last one in particular was about creating the amazing future of Star Trek. We explained all these you know, incredible technologies, everything from AI, robotics, network sensors, synthetic biology, all these amazing technologies, what they're doing, how they're converging, and how they're going to make it possible to create uh, you know, this, um, this uh, future of Star Trek where you have unlimited food, unlimited energy, where uh, we, you know, the world focuses on uplifting humanity. We're exploring the stars. That's what uh, you know, my so, hope and desire is, that we create this, this future that we saw in science So, Vivek, I have to ask you, so you, you had this heart attack, and then you said you ended up at Duke. Could you just paint the picture of how you went from tech exec, heart attack, to Duke University. Just connect the dots. Um, you know, I damaged my heart, frankly, and um, I couldn't go back to being a tech exec because I would have another heart attack. I mean, it's really, really difficult leading a company. What you're doing, Rob, what you've done in your past is incredible because you have fought many battles, you've achieved substantial success, and now you're helping others do it. It's wonderful. It's one way of, of you know, of giving back and, and being engaged. For me, I, I couldn't become a venture capitalist, and I was sick of the tech world. So I just happened to be in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and Duke University was next door. And I happened to know the dean, and I happened to send her an email and saying, you know, Chris, Christina Johnson, I'm trying to uh, figure out what to do with my life. She said, why don't you come over here and, and mentor our faculty and our students? So, so did you go over and have breakfast with them that day, or what was that first meeting with? It sounds like you knew him, but you sent the email. Like, did you go visit him in his office, or was it yeah, what time of year was it? I visited. I mean, I sent her an email. She had been following my my background, and, she, and from her point of view, she wanted to have uh, you know her students have access to business executives because I had been a business executive. Um, you know, the, she thought it was a great opportunity to bring that into uh, academia here in Silicon Valley, where we live. You know, uh, I, I, I mean, uh, uh, business execs who can help students are a dime a dozen because Stanford is surrounded by by people like us, right? So, so there's no problem. In other parts of the country, you don't have the uh, experienced business executives who can help students and who can, you know, coach and mentor the faculty. So many of the people who are listening to this who are business executives, you know, you might find that the universities are very interested in having you get involved with some of the things they're doing. So you can volunteer your time just like I did. And in my case, one thing led to another. And I ended up getting appointments not only at Duke, but also Harvard, Stanford, Singularity, I mean, Emory, and um, now Carnegie Mellon. And I'm now I'm at Carnegie Mellon and Harvard. So the fact is the universities welcome you when you contribute, when, you, when you're giving back to the world. So it sounds like you lecture a fair amount with this as well. Yes, I teach at Carnegie Mellon. I teach a full 12-unit course uh, at uh, CMU. And then at Harvard, I'm doing research. I'm, impact, I'm doing research on the impact of, of technology on jobs. So when you look at a given week that you have, Vivek, how much of it do you spend just thinking and writing? Probably about 20 30% is thinking, writing. 20 30% is uh, teaching and getting involved with students. And then I also uh, you know, 
give talks all over the world. I mean, I, I can make, uh, you know, I, I get invitations from all over the world to give talks. So they pay big speaking fees. So that's where I make my money because you don't make money in academia. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> one thing I'm curious about is the ideas that you talk about. You talked about how you interact with people on Twitter and some of these other areas. Where Where is the physical place that you do this? Is it when you're flying on the plane to different places? Do you have a study at home? Do you try to get out of the context of your normal day-to-day life? Um, you know, wherever you are, uh, wherever I am, I have my smartphone with me. So, now, you know, when I'm basically commuting, when I'm sitting in a, in a plane, I'll do some writing. When I'm uh, uh, in an Uber, I can go and tweet so you just multitask over here, and that's the advantage of now having everything on your smartphones. The good side of technology is that we can always be connected, uh, and we just do it in our downtime. So you so must be good with your thumbs, again, then, if you're writing with your smartphone. Well, no, that you, when, you, when I'm on flights, I have my laptop with me. So ah, <laughs> okay. So moving to Alex, you studied political science and Russian in college. How did you make the shift from... Political science. It sounds like you were training to be a spy, basically. So you, you had this background. How did you become interested in tech and innovation? Uh, so I got it. I mean, my dad bought me an Apple II when I was very young. Uh, you know, I used to do a little bit of coding, uh, Pascal Basic, some assembly language stuff back when you needed to do it if you wanted to make a graphics processor work the right way. And I'd always been fascinated by it. Um, and... I was actually training not so much to be a spy, though that might have been the end, uh, probably more so to work on a Goldman Sachs trading desk or be an academic. <laughs> so I'm the first uh, person in my family that doesn't either have two master's degrees or a PhD from an Ivy League institution, essentially. Uh, everybody's professors in my family. So you had the Apple II, and do you remember, do, did you write much code with it? or A little bit, play yeah. Appli- I, well, I played Sneakers or Castle Wolfenstein and, you know, and that kind of stuff back oh, then. What was Sneakers? I seem to remember this. Was it a game that you would load onto your Apple II? Yeah, this was back when you had discs, uh, you know, when you had to load the disc in to run. So this was you know, quite a while ago. Um, and Sneakers was kind of like Frogger. Uh, you know, uh, or you'd have to, I mean, there'd be a bunch of things crossing a screen and you had to shoot them or without uh, getting run over by a car or, or, or getting hit by a sneaker the... or something like that. Yeah. Okay. No, I mean, and, and I liked it not enough to become a coder, but it was always something that was super fascinating to me. Uh, so I was always using technology pretty early. Um, and then as I, uh, I kind of hit a wall, I was supposed to go to graduate school, um, and get actually a degree probably would have been game theory around political science. Um, cause most of the people in my family are economists actually. Uh, and I decided I wanted to go surfing instead. So I moved to Hawaii and while I was there, this was right when the internet was starting to take off, um, which, uh, you know, was a fascinating time. And I started writing a lot about technology because I realized you could live wherever you want and write about technology. And when you were writing in the early days, were you always writing on computers using word processors or do you write physically? I am a word. I'm a word processor native, which is both good and bad. I, you know, I I feel uncomfortable uh, writing long form for long periods of time. Um, so, one other question that brought up is, what was it like growing up around a lot of economists? Uh, I started my IRA when I was 19 years old. <laughs> um, the the public interest or the NBER was, you know, the reading in the toilet. Um, you know. Uh, it, it, you learned a lot about healthcare economics at a very young age. So, I mean, it was actually really good because it made you think about the world uh, at a much deeper 
I wouldn't say mathematical, but more logical level than what you normally get in media, even today. Uh, and it kind of makes you peel back the covers on stuff and ask harder questions. I think economists are some of the more honest academics. So you shared the, shared the story of how you and Vivek started to work together. What is it like co-authoring? Maybe, Alex, talk about that a little more, about how it's different than writing on your own, writing with a co-author. Um, so I really appreciate working with Vivek because uh, I mean I can crank stuff out really, really quickly. Uh, so the way we usually kind of do things is I, I like write a bunch of stuff and then Vivek comes in, weighs in, edits some, moves things around, you know, and he, he kind of guides me in the right directions. And, and, and so, I mean, we work together very effectively that way. And so he helps me think things through in a way that will resonate better with audiences, um, you know, and also just kind of makes me think more broadly very often. You know, I tend to get down in the weeds a little bit too much. Uh, and, and I think that that way it helps me direct and really, you know, sort of take that first draft through. And then honestly, like if he weren't there to hone the ideas and give us this, like, you know, your happiness was hacked. I had called it the end of happiness, which is, you know, it's like, oh, okay. That's like, uh, you know, that's more like an, an economist saying it, or your happiness is hacked. That's like, you know, what would you put on a book cover? Right. You know, so Vivek has much more of a market savvy than I do. And, and Vivek, what? Why don't more people take this approach of co-authoring books? They should because um, uh, you you know you always need someone as a sounding board to challenge your ideas and to help you. And in in this case, Alex is just I mean you should see this game right. I mean sometimes we're on uh, Google Docs together, and I'm amazed that you know by the time I've read something, is another paragraph has showed up. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's it's a sort of you know very positive relationship. It's always good. I mean, you know, people take years to write books. It doesn't have to take years. I mean, this book, uh, from the time we, you know, was, I mean, it took us about three or four months to research it. But then after that, it was about three months and the book was completed because both of us could could simply, you know, you know, come together and just edit, re-edit, uh, change ideas and so on. So think we, we could be very productive and uh, have a much broader uh, set of, of topics and ideas by co-authoring. So so, so, could, if, so I encourage people to do it. That uh, it's not, you know, a lot of people think that I want all the credit. It's never about credit. It's really about creating a work that people, you know, I mean, creating something that people want to read that that helps them, that benefits them. It's always about giving back. This is one thing I've learned in all of my writing. That if you write it for yourself, then no one's going to read it. If you write it for other people, and keep in mind that your message, your purpose in writing, is to educate and inspire other people, then you're a lot more successful. So talking about another book that the two of you co-authored together, you co-authored The Driver in the Driverless Car. That's right. Yeah. Alex, could you talk for a moment about what the book is about? Uh, so, yeah. Um, and that book was funny because initially it was uh, it was going to be a techno-utopian book about how the future is wonderful. Um, and this is the book that Vivek was alluding to earlier, where as we started to dig in, we realized that uh, the the book is about the pivotal crossroads we feel we're at with regard to so many technologies, what you call exponential technologies. So you look at something like AI, you look at genomics, you look at robotics, you look at, uh, I mean, even computing with quantum computing coming online, that there's things now which we're on the cusp of having go mainstream that will be truly transformational in ways that are, go way beyond the Internet, way beyond earlier waves of technology. And yet there's really hasn't been a lot of dialogue 
about how this will impact society, how we want this to work, uh, whether things should be done this way or that way. And when you look back at sort of the Internet adoption, you know, the fact that we didn't talk about this stuff, now we're seeing the problems that happened because of that. There was no conversation about data or privacy or no one thought putting a drunk pic on Facebook when you were 25 was a bad idea. And so we wanted this book to encourage people to think about these technologies in the future and try to ask you know, is this the way we want our society to be and guide it in a way that's, uh, you know, that's best for all. Because frankly, we think that, you know, as you see now, when you let the mandarins of tech just guide us, it's not necessarily a good thing. So I have a follow-up question to that. But if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School, channel 132. Here in the studio right now with Alex Selkiever, and on the line we have Vivek Wadwa, experts in the future of technology. So it sounds like this may be a theme that you've had with the books that you've written, which is to be thoughtful about and look at the next layer of technology. So kind of the implications. So everybody thinks about the benefits right away. Facebook, keep in touch with your friends, the car, the driverless car getting you from one place to another. Vivek, how do you, how do you feel about the, the themes and and what you've learned in writing these books, like what's really the most important thing for people to think about with technology? Rob, you know, it's a heart attack. For me, it's all been about giving back to the world and trying to leave it a better place and, you know, and, and give, do more for others than, than anything else. So, so, so the, the theme of the, my writings and the theme of my books is always to, is to teach people what I know and to inspire them to think bigger and to solve problems. So, so again, these last two books were about the fact that um, we, you know we, we, technology is wonderful; uh, it, it can do great things. However, something has gone wrong, and we need to bring it back on track. So we've been trying to focus a message on saying how do we now get things back on track and and make sure that uh, you know everything is headed in the right direction. So that is really the central theme in this one. The next book we're going to, you know, we're, we're talking, we're talking about several things. But what I'd like to do is to focus on how we can help businesses now, because I see every industry is about to be disrupted. That industry after industry after industry, next five or ten years are going to be traumatic. We're going to be wiping out, you know, trillion-dollar industries and creating new ones. So the question is, how can we help companies reinvent themselves? I think that's a, that's another important message and uh, technology. Alex has a couple of other ideas, but but again, the same theme that how can we help people do you know things more sensibly and so, so that it helps rather than hurt society well when you look at some of the industries that are about to get reinvented you take a look at things obviously uber reinvented point-to-point transportation using off-the-shelf technologies that everybody had in their hand and now with the scooters and the bikes it's all sort of accelerating and the scooters are a pretty wild one have you guys looked much at the the scooter wave we had i ride the scooters we had lime on recently and when we talk about scooters for people that are listening that haven't seen these scooters they're basically like a high-powered kids razor they're very small scooters. They're not what you think of when you think of a Vespa or some Italian sexy scooter. These are small utilitarian devices that weigh, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 pounds. They don't weigh much. And, and I mean, they're all over a lot of cities. Uh, they essentially, like, drop them in without asking the cities if it's okay. Because they don't cost much. They're only about they 400 bucks a piece to make. Yeah. No, I mean, it, and... Uh, and then, then people come in and they ride them. And what you've seen in the tech press is actually initially people are like, oh, this is terrible. And then they go and ride them and realize how convenient it is. And you start to have a different vision of like, oh, 
this could make cities more livable. And this is exactly what Vivek is talking about with disruptive technology. You know, most of the old businesses tend to think in terms of we'll put a giant bus line here or we're going to build a giant airport and you know or like the what's the i forget it's i think it's the a380 it's a giant aerobus plane where it's like everything's going to be giant hub and spoke when you know anyone who followed technology like you follow aerospace knew that that was probably the wrong direction to go in um and so i think a lot of the time that's what we want to think about is like what's good for people and what's good for making us, uh, you know, sort of a happier place for humans to live. So one specific area I wanted to ask you about, Vivek, is you talked about the driver in the driverless car. And one industry where there is massive change that will be coming is in freight and moving things around. At Shasta, we're early investors in Starsky Robotics. They're building long-haul, self-driving 18-wheelers. And that's an industry that in the U.S. each year, it's something like $200 billion a year is spent just on dry freight going from one place to another. And there's also what's called a driver shortage right now. There are a lot of people that don't like these jobs because they have to travel long distances, stay away from home. So they actually have trouble hiring, but there's increasing demand. There seem to be a lot of areas where people fear robots are going to take jobs, but in practice, they're freeing people up to do other things. What do you think is going on with the robotics wave and what do you think are the implications that people haven't really thought through yet Vivek Yeah when it comes to trucks I mean it's, it's almost there's almost no doubt that the self-driving trucks make a lot of sense I mean imagine having to drive for you know all across the country uh, on the highways my, I mean my Tesla Model S gets into autopilot it works great on route 280 on local roads it doesn't work properly yet but on on the highway we already have uh, self-driving cars. So the next step is self-driving trucks. So we could simply have them, you know, go to the exit and, and stop over there and let the human being take over there. Or we could ha- simply have a warehouse, you know, right next to the exit where the drones do the last mile delivery. So no matter what we do now, uh, the jobs of the you know truck drivers are going to uh, disappear because technology can do a job. We do it much better than, than we can, you know, than, than human beings can. And that is a trillion-dollar industry that's going to be disrupted before you know it. And it'll be better. So now the question is, can those those truck drivers be put into um, into new jobs, into new fields, and can we provide better services as a result of that? It's all up in the air. But the fact is that the disruption is, that's going to be one of the fastest industries to be disrupted. And then you're going to start seeing robots serving us in restaurants and you know, um, they already wash dishes, but loading up the, the dishwashers themselves and things like that. So those robots are coming. Um, yeah, I mean, here, we're, we're making them here. They've been made all over the world. But that disruption is inevitable, unstoppable at this so, stage. So I want to ask about this. I think that people, this is my opinion, I think people often overestimate how quickly robots will take jobs. Oh, I disagree. Generically speaking. I disagree completely. I think a lot of people a couple years ago were thinking all the Uber drivers are going to be put out of business. All these things are going to change. And when you look at what it costs to hire a truck driver today, it's going up very dramatically because truly people don't want these jobs. So it's kind of a natural place. And when you take a look at, say, Bill Gates, for example, calling for a robot tax, I don't think he was exactly calling for a replace the secretaries with word and voicemail tax about 15, 20 years ago when Microsoft was being built. So how do you think about the role of government in and around this? 
Can they make the problem worse, like or should they be able to make it better, Alex? So, so I, I'm actually going to let Vivek answer that one because he tends to think about the role of government. I, I, you know, it's a. Yeah, I mean, uh, so when it comes to jobs, they, they, the the revolution hasn't started yet. The self-driving trucks don't work effectively enough yet. They will in the next year or two, but the, the disruption is about five years away. Now, uh, so, so so far we're in denial because you you have the optimists. You have the Silicon Valley people saying, hey, we're going to create all these magical new jobs. Everything will be okay. Everything won't be okay. In that five to ten year time frame, you'll see a number of occupations which get you know, decimated. And the truck drivers are going to be first on that list. The question is, what do you do now? What do you do with, it, with these uh, you know, good human beings who have uh, been, who've been hauling trucks their whole lives? You've got to retrain them. This is where so government kn- comes in. So I know because Alex is eager to eager to jump in. We have about two minutes here. Yeah. So quickly, what I wanted to say also is that I think that the reason why people are underestimating uh, how fast this is going to happen is because it's hard for them to see exponential curves. So I mean, AlphaGo was not supposed to be to beat a human until a decade later. Uh, we already saw Dota 5 by OpenAI beat a team of human Dota experts. It's, Dota is a multiplayer game, which is essentially something that's almost as complicated as a lot of real-world teamwork exercises. We saw two days ago a robot come out that can move things with its fingers in a way that industrial robots couldn't do. So the progress is happening much faster than people realize. And once it tips a certain point, it doesn't have to be that robots are better than humans. It has to be good enough. That's all. So, so government has to now figure out how we're going to retrain people, how we're going to provide them social welfare, how we're going to ease the transition, because industry isn't going to do it. Industry is going to focus on, on increasing their revenue and their numbers. And frankly, this is what I'm going to be researching at Harvard. The reason why I joined Harvard Law School, Richard Freeman in particular, was because he's doing a three-year project to, to first of all, document exactly what is happening, and then to develop policies to help mitigate the darkness that we could create by wiping out all these jobs. So we have to start thinking about it. We, you know, a lot of good can come from all this, but there are going to be dark sides, and this is why we need to have our policymakers and our business leaders and our academics and the rest of us all working together to figure this out. And, and to summarize it super, super quickly, we need to help people, not businesses. I mean, when, when in the past we tried to help businesses, but people are what need the help right now, not the businesses. Yeah, and it sounds like in your next book you will be talking about helping the businesses. That too. But that's a great place to stop. Alex and Vivek, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.